You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations... I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is... Has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. 
Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself of my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is the word of God. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. Let's go. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Right here in the first verse of this book, we get a little introduction to the book itself. This verse tells us the who, the what, and the when. And so as we prepare to study this book together, let's engage those three introductory topics. First of all, who? Who is Isaiah? Well, he's Amos's son, obviously. Doesn't that answer the question for you? Uh, Amos, rabbinic tradition tells us, was the brother of King Amaziah of Judah. So if that tradition is reliable, that puts Isaiah as a part of the royal family. So he's a prophet who's not speaking from the margins as an outsider, but rather a prophet who speaks to us from a place of privilege and power within the culture. He's sort of an outsider who's on the inside, if you will. Some of the biblical prophets are, are speaking from the margins. Isaiah is one who speaks more from the center of the culture. But the reason we don't know much about Isaiah in terms of who he is and his background is simply this, because the most important thing about him is his name. The name Isaiah means the Lord saves. And so in his name is really summed up the entire message of his book and of his ministry. Isaiah is here to teach us and to tell us about the God who saves sinners. His name carries with it the great weightiness of the book that he writes and the ministry that he carries. Isaiah is one of the major prophets in the Bible, and and here's an important thing you need to understand about prophets. I think sometimes when we think about prophecy, we think that a prophet is a, a foreteller, or maybe a fortune teller even, right? Someone who predicts the future. Though Isaiah and other prophets do speak sometimes about what is yet to come, it's better to understand a prophet as a forth teller, as a preacher, as a proclaimer of the word of the Lord. Isaiah's job is to proclaim, to tell, to speak forth God's word to the people of his own day and to the people of of our day. So that's who Isaiah is, a prophet, the son of Amos, uh, connected to the center of power in the culture in which he's writing. 
Here's the second thing we see in this introductory verse is the what. It tells us this is the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw. One of the things the Bible calls prophets is seers. That's a curious term, isn't it? What does it mean that Isaiah saw this, that this is a vision? What is he trying to help us understand? To give you some context, let me read to you from CNN. An article from about four years ago. You guys, when I read this, will remember this popular film. The article starts this way. James Cameron's film, Avatar, may have been a little too real for some fans who say they've experienced depression and suicidal thoughts after seeing the film because they long to enjoy the beauty of the alien world Pandora. A fan forum site has received more than 1,000 posts from people experiencing depression and from fans trying to help them cope. The movie was so beautiful and it showed something we don't have here on earth, said one fan. Another wrote, when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar, the world seemed gray. It was like my whole life, everything I've done and worked for lost its meaning. I live in a dying world. James Cameron, you see, is a skilled filmmaker. And what a filmmaker does is he creates a picture in order to inspire longing. He tells a story visually in a way that makes us long to be caught up in that story. And that, my friends, is exactly what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is called a seer because what he does is he paints for us a picture of what is and what could be and what is coming so that it inspires us to long. His words are more to be envisioned and seen in our mind's eye. So so for those of us who are more familiar with the didactic or the teaching portions of Scripture that sort of tell us what we are to do, we need to sort of reacclimate to the kind of literature Isaiah is. It's more like a screenplay. Isaiah is going to paint pictures for us and use imagery to draw us into a world and make us long to be a part of it and see how repentance and faith in Christ is the key to living in that world. That's what Isaiah is doing. That's why it says this is the vision which he saw. And finally, this tells us when he ministered. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So these kings reigned from about 740 BC to approximately 680 BC. So a span of about 60 years. That's the scope of Isaiah's ministry. Think about the changes in our own culture in the last 60 years. We've gone from landing a man on the moon to the International Space Station. We've gone from Vietnam to drone warfare. We've gone from Jim Crow laws to the first African-American president. A lot has changed. The same was true in Isaiah's day over the span of 60 years Much changed in the society he was ministering to. And so what we should expect then as we encounter this book is, first of all, that it's not monolithic. It's diverse. It speaks God's word into a number of different situations. And secondly, that it's 
compiled. In other words, Isaiah didn't sit down and write these 66 chapters in one sitting. Rather, what we have here is a compilation of prophetic oracles and writings from the whole scope of his ministry spanning 60 years. And so we should expect then that just like there would be diversity in what God has to say in that day, that the same would be true as we read it today. There's going to be inherent tension in this book. Sometimes God is going to be speaking words of comfort, and sometimes He's going to be speaking words of rebuke. And sometimes He's going to seek to, to bring peace and gentleness, and sometimes His words are going to come with forcefulness and sharpness. Because just like in our day, there's a number of situations historically that Isaiah is seeking to speak God's word into. So in verse 1, we get a little bit of an overview, a little bit of a, a, a sense of what's coming. What is this book that we're about to enter into? I want to remind you again that uh, next week, as Ray Ortland is with us, he's going to do even more of a flyover of all 66 chapters to, to sort of give you a sense of what's to come this year as we work through all these chapters. But here in verse 1, we get a little sense of an introduction to the book. Someone asked me this morning, uh, are you excited about starting Isaiah? And my answer is, kind of. I mean, I'm really excited but, but here's the challenge of Isaiah chapter 1. As you heard, if you were listening when the scripture was read, Isaiah is going to come out strong this morning. He comes right out of the gate swinging. The first chapter in this book is not a chapter that's designed necessarily to bring comfort, but rather one that's designed as a rebuke. And so it's challenging for me this morning because I realize we're going from 0 to 60. We're jumping right in, and Isaiah has some strong words to say to us this morning. And, and so the question might be, wh why? Why does Isaiah come out so directly? Why does he speak with so much forcefulness? Why, why right from the beginning, is he seeking to engage us and, and call us to account? The reason is because we are, spiritually speaking, insane. We're not living in reality. We're not seeing things as they are. And insanity, you see, is a difficult thing to confront. It requires a certain way of speaking and a certain way of writing. Listen to this humorous account from G.K. Chesterton. If a man says there is a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all men deny the conspiracy, which is exactly what conspirators would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. Or, if a man says he is the rightful king of England, it is no answer to say that the existing authorities call him mad. For if he were the king of England, that might be the wisest thing for the existing authorities to do. The problem with the madman is that he is quite sure he is sane. And the problem with us spiritually is that we are quite sure we are sane. We are quite sure that our way of seeing reality is true and real and accurate. And so Isaiah, in order to call us out of our insanity, needs to speak directly to us. It needs to speak forcefully to us. 
part of where we're off, part of what we're convinced of, part of the way our insanity plays out in the modern world is that we are convinced that our understanding of what God should be like is correct. That that the things we don't like about God or don't understand about God, that we're right and God is wrong, and that really what God needs to do is answer for being the way God is. What we do is we hold God accountable to our standards and we say, if God wants my worship, he needs to answer my questions and overcome my objections and meet me where I'm at. Here's how C.S. Lewis described our modern malady. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Where have you put God on trial this morning? Where are you guilty of expecting God to meet your demands and answer your objections and come your way? The people in Isaiah's day were quite the same as us. And you see, the problem is that our entire view of the world is upside down. We have gone mad. We see things contrary to the way they really are. And so in order to help us, in order to save us, in order to redeem us, God must confront our insanity and paint for us a picture of true reality. And so he sends the prophet Isaiah to do just that. How many of you guys have been to court on a show of hands? Come on. Been there as a jury member or as a defendant or uh, to get something? Okay, good. So lots of you guys have been in a courtroom. And you know, in a courtroom, there's really only two people that matter. The judge and the accused. Now, there may be some attorneys there. There may be some court personnel there. But those other people who are there are there to facilitate the interaction between the judge and the accused. The issue in the courtroom is the judge and the accused. And as C.S. Lewis said, the problem with our modern view of the world is that we are the judge and God is the accused. And you see, what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to bring us into the courtroom of heaven. He's going to show us a true picture of reality, which is that God is the judge and we are the accused. He wants to take our way of seeing things and flip it completely upside down. Because in fact, the way we see things is upside down. And so... Isaiah is going to show us this morning the path to spiritual sanity. It begins with the very first word of verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The first step toward spiritual sanity is to hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah is bringing us into a courtroom here when he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's calling all of creation to be witnesses to the trial. He's saying, listen, every aspect of creation, give ear to what I'm about to say, to this adjudication between the holy God and his people. And Isaiah's call to us 
as we step towards spiritual sanity, as he tries to call us out of our folly, is to say, here, listen. He repeats this call over and over again. You see it in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the teaching of our God. You see it in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Verse 20, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares. Isaiah is concerned this morning that you would hear. That you would listen. Whose voice do you listen to? Whose counsel matters most to you? Whose insight and input and wisdom do you seek? For some of you, maybe the loudest voice is family, friends. For some of you, maybe the loudest voice in your life is yourself. You will decide and determine what is true and what is right and what is good. For many of us, the loudest voice, the ones we tend to listen to, are all the voices in the culture that consistently are broadcasting to us what is fashionable, what is good, how reasonable and enlightened people think about things, how we ought to see reality. Insanity, you see, comes from listening to the wrong voices. Isaiah says... Will you hear? Will you listen? Will you let God speak? The beautiful thing about the God who created the heavens and earth is that he's gone on the record. Isaiah says, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Verse 10 makes it really plain. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, this isn't me that made this stuff up. It's not some human prophet sitting down and writing provocative words. This is God speaking into human time and space and history. And see, God has gone on the record. He doesn't speak in private. He doesn't speak in secret. He speaks publicly. He speaks for all to hear. He wants to invite us to listen. Isaiah says, listen, we're we're putting it on the public record. God is speaking. Will you hear? Will you listen? Sometimes it helps us to hear when we see the disposition with which God speaks. Look at verse 2. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The reason God speaks, the reason God wants us to listen and hear is because he's a good and loving father who's after his wayward children. He's not speaking to us as some abstract, removed, distant deity. He's speaking as a father who's concerned for the welfare and well-being of his children, of his people, of those he loves and he has committed himself to. This morning, people of Cormdale, God speaks. Will we listen? Will we hear? The first step toward spiritual sanity is to hear the word of the Lord, to heed it as what it really is, as God's words to us. 
The second step on the path towards spiritual sanity, the path back to our senses in our relationship with God, is to see the insanity of sin. To see the insanity of sin. So Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord. But listen, what he's going to do now in this whole chapter is to paint for us a picture of the insanity of sin. He's going to use five images to to, to give us a, a mental picture of what sin does and how it affects us. He's not interested in just saying, hey, here, repent. He's interested in saying, Think about this, ponder this, see this in your mind's eye. Look at the five pictures that he paints, and and let's try to see together the insanity of sin and rebellion against God. The first picture is in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. His first picture is of a body that's beaten and bruised and battered, that hasn't been tended to medically. It's like you just got done with a prize fight and you lost. He says, don't you see how sin is beating you up? Don't you feel bruised and battered? Don't you see the effects in your own being of your rebellion against God? You're like a boxer that's gotten killed in a fight. And there's, there's not really any soundness left in your body. You see how sin is wreaking havoc on you and who you are. And your ability to be a whole and vibrant person. He goes on right away and paints another picture. Look at verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So the picture here moves from the individual to the corporate. He's saying, don't you see how your sin is affecting the people around you? Don't you see the effects on your church? God's people, he said, are like a besieged city. They're like a field that's been picked over and there's a few remnants and remains here and there. There's chaos and disarray among the people of God. Don't you see? Your sin doesn't just affect you. We're Americans and we're individualists and so we like to, see, hey, we like to think, hey, my sin is really just a problem for me and I'm the only one that it has consequences for and if you've lived very long, you know how foolish that is. Your sin affects the people around you. It affects your family. It affects your missional community. It affects your church. Isaiah says, don't you see? Don't you see the chaos of how it's damaging relationships and how it's destroying the people of God? I said there's five images. We're on the third one, and the third one I think is the most provocative and the hardest to hear. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Do you see what God's speaking about here? He's talking about how sin affects your ability to worship and the acceptableness of your worship before God. What he's saying is, hey, great, you're showing up to church. You're here, you're singing songs, you're speaking professions of faith, you're hearing the scriptures, you're receiving communion, and you're not doing any of it with repentance, and I hate it. I'm not interested in that kind of worship. I don't want it. See, we think that we're pleasing God by being here and by worshiping. And he says, I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. If you want to hold on to your sin and show up and worship me, you've misunderstood the whole point of worship. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here for repentance. If you're not bringing your repentance with you in worship, then don't show up. Why are you here? God says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You're weighing me down with your false and selfish worship. This is about you, not me. You're here for you, not me. Cormdale, let's not let this be true of us. Let's not be the kind of people who show up to worship corporately, holding on to our sin, hiding it, not coming in repentance. Let's not be that kind of a people. God says, I hate that. I'm not interested in that. The fourth picture begins in verse 21. It's it's how our sin begins to affect not just church, not just worship, but society as a whole. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Do you see how your sin and my sin and our corporate sin affects the society we live in? You see how it corrupts politics and corrupts justice and corrupts life in the city so that people are out for themselves. They're out to get what they can get. They don't any longer have a sense of what's good for the city and what's good for others and and what furthers human flourishing. He says the city was once a place of righteousness, but now it's just a place where murderers live and get away with it. He ends the chapter with this final picture that's, that's a well-traveled biblical metaphor. Verse 30. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is a well-used biblical metaphor, the difference between thriving, healthy, fruitful plants and dried-up, withering stubble. This picture is used in Psalm 1. It's used in the book of Jeremiah. Jesus uses it in his own teaching. 
Isaiah says, don't you see that what your sin does to you is it makes you dried up and shriveled up and dried out and lifeless. And all it takes is a spark and you just burn up. Can't you see that you're not thriving, you're not healthy, and there's not life, and there's not vibrancy, and there's not joy, and there's not fruitfulness in your soul and in your life and in your community, but rather just dryness and deadness? Do you see, Quorum Deo, the insanity of sin? Do you see, can you step back from your own life and see, this is what rebellion creates, chaos and havoc in our being, in our community, in our gathered worship, in our city, and for our being. Do you see the insanity of sin? Isaiah wants you to see it, and he wants you to see it so that you'll be moved to do something about it. And the reason he uses image and metaphor so you can picture it in your imagination is because he wants to get a hold of you. He wants you to see, why would I want to be like that? Why would I want to be part of a church that's like that? Why would I want to come and worship like that? I long for something different. So once we hear the word of the Lord and once we see the insanity of sin, Isaiah invites us to the final step toward spiritual sanity. See, remember, he's speaking to spiritually insane people. People who think they see. And so first of all, he's saying, listen to someone else's voice beside your own. See, step back from your life and see the effects of what's happening. And now he wants to encourage you to turn to the Lord. When you hear and when you see what that should provoke in you is a desire to turn. And I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 and I want you to see that every single phrase in these verses begins with an active, strong verb. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do you see that repentance is active, not passive? Repentance is active, not passive. Repentance issues in a decisive turning in a new direction. A turning from sin and a turning back to the Lord. Our biggest confusion about repentance is that somehow repentance is passive. We think that repentance is some vague feeling about our sin or some vague sense of guilt or shame about our sin. That's not repentance. Repentance is a turning from sin and a turning to the Lord. And Isaiah wants to put the focus squarely on, listen, if there's not a turning, then there's no repentance. If you're not saying, I want to stop doing evil, and I want to learn to do good, then you're not repenting. You can come to worship all day and say confessions of sin, but if there's not a willingness to turn from it, then it's not repentance. I'm concerned that many of us, because we're in a church where the gospel is preached, and so we hear about repentance often, and we know that repentance is the right answer. For many of us, we think that we are repenting when really we're not. We're just feeling guilt or shame or embarrassment, but that's different from turning. And see, God's design isn't that you would just feel guilt or shame or embarrassment. The reason those emotional consequences are in your soul is to provoke you to actually turn from sin. And if you don't, then you'll keep feeling guilt and shame and embarrassment 
You'll keep feeling just sort of a vague sense of guilt and shame about sin, but you'll never experience the healing grace of God. Repentance is turning. I was talking with a guy recently who this chapter well describes. A guy whose marriage is struggling, a guy whose own soul is sort of in disrepair. He's like an oak whose leaf withers. And many people around him, many who love him, have invited him and called him to repent and turn to the Lord in decisive ways. And here's what he told me. Well, I know I should repent, but I guess that's something God has to do in me, and he's not doing it. So we're back to C.S. Lewis again, aren't we? We're back to your sin being God's fault. We're back to a God who calls you to repent, but apparently doesn't give you the ability to. Is that what you're saying? We're back to a God who wants you to repent, but he's not doing that in you. So it's God who's the problem, not you. We're back to our upside-down world. What I said to him was Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. No, no, no. God can't repent for you. God can't repent for you. That's why he calls you to turn from sin. And listen, here's the beauty. I want you to see now, see the promise, see the tension that God's trying to raise. I said to you, the book of Isaiah is full of tension. Look at the tension God's trying to raise. Verse 16 says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Do you know why God says that? Because he wants you to try and fail. He wants you to try to make yourself clean. He wants you to long to be cleansed and realize that you can't do it. And then look what he says right after that in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Listen to me, only God can cleanse you. Only God can cleanse you. Only God can cleanse you. But you have to turn to Him. You have to want to be cleansed. You have to be willing to turn to cease doing evil and pursue good. You have to seek desire to be washed and cleansed. God can't clean you. He can't make you whole if you don't want to be made whole, if you don't want to be cleansed, if there's not a longing in your soul to be decisively different. I want you to see that verse 18 is a beautiful picture right here in the first chapter of Isaiah of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's, remember, Isaiah's writing as an inspired author of Scripture, and this is like a screenplay. Everything matters. Why crimson? Why the color red? Why this particular image? There's lots of other colors. Black is a dark color. Blue, purple is a dark color. Why red? Why? Because he's foreshadowing the blood of Jesus Christ that actually is cleansing you and I from sin. This image he uses, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ where God sends his judgment on his own son through his blood to bring about the cleansing and freedom and healing from sin that he promises right here. Already in Isaiah, he's pointing us to Jesus and pointing us to the cross. He's saying, look, I can cleanse you. 
I will cleanse you. I promise to cleanse you. But you have got to turn. You've got to repent. My friends, a choice is before us this morning. The choice is sanity or insanity. The choice is, will we walk in the light and the truth and the knowledge of God, or will we continue to walk by our own light in ways that see the world upside down? Will we make God answer to us, or will we be the kind of people who answer to God? For some high school athletes, this past week was a a decisive moment in their lives. February 5th was National Signing Day for high school athletics for football. And so on that day, many athletes signed what? A letter of intent. What does that establish? It establishes an intention to pursue a scholarship and education and involvement in athletics at a particular university. The point of a letter of intent is to say this, that before I sign that as an athlete, I might have all kinds of opportunities available to me, all kinds of schools that are inviting me to come and be part of their system. But when I sign a letter of intent, it's a decisive commitment to say, I'm going this way. I'm setting out on this trajectory. This is going to affect my future. This is going to affect my opportunities. I'm stepping in this direction. Isaiah is inviting you and I to that same sort of decisive intention. He's saying, listen, repentance is a setting out in a new direction. It's an intentional turning. It's not a vague sort of feeling conviction and guilt, but not do anything about it. It's signing a letter of intent. It's stepping out in a direction to say, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to turn from sin. I'm going to seek the Lord. I want to be cleansed. I want to be whole. I want to be healed. I want my body to be restored. I want my church to be made whole. I want my city to be more just. I want my whole being to be healthy and thriving and flourishing, and therefore I will turn. That's what Isaiah is inviting us to. So you might ask, why why so weighty, Isaiah? Why so direct? Why come right out of the gate with such strong language? Because you see, the gospel is a message of salvation. I know you know that. But think about what that word means. Salvation. Means there's something you need to be saved from. What is it that you need to be saved from? Not just the curse of sin at the end of history, but the insanity of sin in the present. You need to be made whole. You need to be set free. You need to be restored. The gospel is a message of salvation, and it's salvation from judgment. And so the message of the gospel always comes with two prongs to it. It always has two focuses. Look at verse 19 and 20 of Isaiah chapter 1. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. There's your two options. Willing and obedient, soft-hearted. Refuse and rebel, hard-hearted. See, the gospel is always a message of salvation to those who will turn and a message of judgment to those who won't. God invites you to turn so that you might be saved from judgment. 
Likewise, in verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Here's what God promises. You will be consumed. Your sin will eat you up. Not not just later, now. You'll be like a dry, withered up tree. Your relationships will be fractured and fragmented. Your soul will be distracted and disheveled. Or you can turn. You can come to the God who wants to bring healing and life, who promises to cleanse you from sin, to make you white as snow, to give you the good of the land, a metaphor for all the healthy blessing and flourishing that comes from life with God. The gospel always comes to two kinds of people, those who repent and those who rebel. All of us this morning are rebellious. The question is, will we stay that way? Or will we turn, will we embrace the message that Isaiah is preaching? Will we hear the word of the Lord? Will we see the insanity and the effects of our sin? And will we turn? So listen, I know this is strong truth this morning. I told you, Isaiah's not always going to be fun. There'll be some real comforting chapters in the future, but this morning, Isaiah wants us to do business. And so I want to invite you this morning to to wrestle with this. I want to give you a moment just to take stock of your own heart and your own soul and what is God calling you to do. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray for us in a minute. We're going to go to the communion table and then at the end of the service, some of the elders and deacons are just going to be up here in the corner over here. And if you need to come and talk and pray, sort some things out in your soul, that's why we're here. But I want to invite you, call you, beckon you to the good news of the gospel, which starts with the bad news of sin. The bad news is that things are much worse than you think. Your sin is much worse than you think. The consequences and the effects are much worse than you think. And the good news of the gospel is the grace of God is much greater than you think. God makes sinful people forgiven. God makes stained people clean. God makes people who are red with sin, white as snow, pure as wool through Jesus Christ. Will you come to him this morning? Let's take a moment, reflect, and then pray. Father, to we who are mad because of sin, to we who see the world upside down, these words seem stark and direct. And I pray this morning that we would see your grace, that what you are seeking to do is to call us to spiritual sanity. to call us to see things as they really are. And so we acknowledge, God, that that when people don't see reality, it takes patient, firm truth to bring them to reality. So thank you for sending the prophet Isaiah.
to call us to a new sense of awareness. I pray this morning for me and for us that we would hear your word. Would you help us to see with the images that Isaiah paints for us the effects, the damage of sin? And would you help us this morning to decisively turn? And Father, I want to pray especially for the many people in Coram Deo who use the language of repentance without repenting. We are a church that's great at confession and terrible at repentance. And so would you this morning provoke our hearts not just to acknowledge the ways that we're wrong and have sinned against you, but to decisively turn. Would you help us to embrace your promise that you can and will make us white as snow? Father, I pray for those who this morning are feeling the effects of sin, the brokenness in themselves and in their relationships, that that they would recognize the antidote to that is repentance and faith, turning to you, being cleansed. And so would you use those clues to show us where we have not repented, where we have not decisively turned. Thank you that as a good father, you're calling us back into fellowship, back into communion with you, back into relationship, back into healing, not back into religion and ritual and showing up for worship with a dead heart. But God, you're calling us into life and vibrancy and freedom and fruitfulness and joy and spiritual thriving. We want to look like that. Move in us this morning. Move us to embrace your promises of healing and salvation. And to take this morning the active step of repentance and turning. May we be a people who cease to do evil and learn to do good. Thank you, Jesus, that you make us white as snow. Amen.